Welcome to you who are here in person this morning, and if you've just slid into the digital back pew, welcome to you as well. Um, I am, uh, as Natasha said, uh, a professor at Knox College, and uh, so Mondays to Thursdays, Fridays, I'm a near neighbor of you, and um, uh, Knox is uh, one of the theological colleges of the Presbyterian Church in Canada, and we offer all sorts of master's and doctoral degrees to train people for ministry in Canada and around the world. Uh, One of the newer programs we have that might be of interest to people here is our Certificate of Theological Studies, where seven courses earns you a uh, certificate from the University of Toronto and Knox College, and then that can be used if you you wish to go on to further work in uh, master's degree studies, but it's a good basic introduction to, um, to theology and to biblical studies, pastoral, uh, pastoral studies uh, that helps equip you to do things uh, in the church or just for your own personal uh, edification. So keep that in mind if you, if you find that you've got time on your hands and you're thinking about ways you can equip yourself for, for more work. Uh, well, I guess it's too late to preach for a call, right? Um, Alex, uh, you've called Alex McLeod, and that's uh, great news, and I'm really uh, pleased for you and for him, and I pray that together God is really going to bless the ministry of this uh, congregation in the Presbyterian Church in Canada. Well, uh, my dad uh, grew up in the 1930s and the 1940s in East York, And as he was a kid growing up, he lived right near, just down the street, from his cousin Angus. And through their childhood, my dad and his cousin Angus, they palled around as kids do. And Angus was the kind of guy who back then would have been described as a rascal. Um, He had a very interesting life with a whole lot of ups and a whole lot of downs, most of them of his own making. And along the way, he played fast and loose with the rules, and he played fast and loose with identity, his own identity and even the identity of others. So early in his career, he worked for Trans World Airlines, and my dad's sister and her husband, they were missionaries to Alaska. Uncle Don was a church planter, and Aunt Ruth managed the the gospel movie film service where you sent 16 millimeter films out to distant and isolated communities in Alaska. That was what they did there as missionaries. And once when they were flying TWA to the lower 48 states, Angus sent word down the corporate chain that this couple and their three sons were very important celebrities from Alaska. And my cousin later told me about how they were suddenly upgraded and they were ushered into the first-class lounge and flight attendants came over to them and offered them as kids everything that they possibly could could want. Now, later, uh, Angus claimed that the owner of TWA, the mysterious and reclusive millionaire Howard Hughes, had hired him to be one of his five world representatives. And after Howard Hughes died, Angus went off into business as himself, making a lot of business trips to Africa, East Asia, 
Central America. He was in Nicaragua a lot for some reason. And once when I asked him what he did, he said he sold used aircraft to uh, the governments of developing countries. And he told my cousins that he worked for the Central Intelligence Agency and over the years showed more than one of my cousins the classic espionage movie briefcase full of cash, you know, neatly stacked layers of wrapped American American hundreds, right? Two of my cousins saw this. Uh, One of them during a layover when Angus was on his way to Nicaragua. Um, To take this, he said, to the Canadian embassy. Well, at times, Angus's uh, pattern, his agenda, was simply impersonation and fraud. So my dad was a doctor, and on more than one occasion, uh, word came back to our family that Angus had been impersonating my dad. And late in his life, and this is something that will trouble our organist Carmen tremendously, so you can sort of close your ears. Late in his life, my cousin Angus, my dad's cousin Angus, pretended to be a wealthy Baptist philanthropist, and he hatched a scheme to pawn off badly cobbled together used pipe organs on American megachurches. And for that, he spent eight years in U.S. federal prison. Now, over the years, he said a lot of things about his identity, and you were never sure if he was telling the truth, and more importantly, you were never sure who he actually was. To this day, I still have no idea who that man actually was. As a result, I never knew how to relate to him. Not knowing what is true and who a person really is makes it very difficult to have a relationship with someone. With Angus, my mother's solution was just to say to me, if he ever comes to the door, don't open it, right? But I suppose we all have a relative like that, right? Yeah. Anyway, uh, personal identity and what it means for relationship is very much at the heart of today's gospel reading. So uh, grab your Bibles or open your Bible app and please turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Now, today is that day in the church calendar when we celebrate Transfiguration Sunday. And it's worth asking, why do we bother? Why do we do that? What is it about this event in the life of Jesus that sets it apart from so many others? It's told in in just less than 10 verses in the Gospel of Matthew. Why have Matthew, Mark, and also Luke each preserved this account for us? Well, in a nutshell, this event is vitally important for Christians because it's one of those moments when we come to understand exactly who Jesus is. We learn something hugely important about his identity and how God is going to use him and what that means for us as his followers. Now, as we come to this very strange event, what's been going on? And for that, you'll have to look back to chapter 17. So go back to, or chapter 16, go back to about verse 17 of chapter 16. There, uh, Jesus and his disciples are in the region of Caesarea Philippi. 
Now, if I'd gotten my act together and I had some slides, I'd show you a map and you'd see the Sea of Galilee in the north of Israel. And just north of that, at the foot of uh, this huge mountain, Mount Hermon, where uh, today it's snow-capped, today there's an Israeli ski resort there. But at the foot of that mountain, Mount Hermon, uh, is Caesarea Philippi. And this is where Jesus and his disciples have been spending some time. And Jesus, at this point, asks his followers a question, one that surrounds identity. Who do people say the Son of Man is? What are people saying about me? Who do they think I am? And so uh, the disciples all report back what they'd heard. Well, they said, it's John the Baptist. Some people say you're John the Baptist, and others, Elijah. Oh, and there's Jeremiah and a whole bunch of other prophets. And Jesus follows up then with the more important question for his followers, who do you think that I am? And here, Peter chimes in with, well, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And that's a really good answer. And Jesus responds to Peter's answer by granting Peter authority in a kingdom, but one that's heavenly. And it's a kingdom that is going to nullify the power of Hades, or the land of the dead. And at the very end of this, he adds, don't breathe a word about this to anybody else. Now, there's good reason for Jesus to want to keep this news of his identity quiet. Uh, This was a time of Roman occupation of Judea, and Peter has just declared that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, and everybody knew what this meant. Jewish belief at that time held that there was going to be a time of tribulation and oppression for Israel, and that time was called the birth pangs of the Messiah. And God at that time was going to send his Messiah to destroy Israel's enemies, rescue its people, and usher in a millennial age of peace and perfection. And the Jewish historian uh, Josephus actually records several cases in the first century where Jews rose claiming to be the Messiah only to be killed along with their uh, followers by the Roman authorities. So now here, Peter gets Jesus' identity right. Jesus is the Messiah. But it's not clear that Peter understands exactly what this means. So discretion is wise. And because of this, Jesus next gives Peter some help understanding what it means to follow Jesus the Messiah. It's interesting to note that after Peter's declaration, Jesus gives him authority. But it's not an authority that says, hey, you'll be my second in command while we take on the armies of Rome. It's an authority in a kingdom that's heavenly. And that kingdom is going to do battle not with Rome, but with the realm of the dead. And over the following week, Jesus continues to help his closest followers understand how his messiahship will play out. In chapter 16, verse 21, he says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And there, all of the elites of society are going to pile on. The elders of the people, the chief priests, the experts in the law, they're all going to pile on. 
and I'm going to be abused, and I'm ultimately going to be killed, but I'll be raised to life on the third day. And for Peter, this is news that just does not compute for him. And uh, for him, suffering and death meant failure and divine disapproval. And in this, he was in good company because there were a lot of people in Jewish society at this time that hadn't noticed from Isaiah 53 that part of the Messiah's identity was that the Messiah was going to suffer for his people. That this was part, suffering was part of God's plan for the Messiah. And so thinking this, Peter takes Jesus aside and he gives him a piece of his mind. The text actually says that Peter rebukes Jesus. And so Jesus gives it back just as, just as much. And he says to, to, uh, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And so Jesus actually calls Peter Satan. Now, the, the word Satan in Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke, is a word that comes from a root meaning to hinder or to deviate from the the proper or the right path. The point here is that Peter's Jesus, the Peter's plan for Jesus, is one that deviates from the Father's plan for Jesus, and this makes Peter a stumbling block. And so Jesus, once again, helps his disciples understand what the future holds for them. If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, he says in 1624. In other words, I've told you what lies in store for me, abuse and death. If you're really my followers, if you're going to be with me and part of my kingdom, then you're going to have to be willing to accept the same thing. And as he wraps up, he says to his disciples at the end of chapter 16 that there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this statement by Jesus at the end of chapter 16 is what transitions us to uh, the transfiguration in chapter 17. And what happens, and what's going to happen, as some of those who had been present when he was talking to them earlier uh, are going to have a unique experience of Jesus in his transfigured and heavenly glory. And so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his most trusted followers, along with him to this high mountain, and there he is transformed in front of them. His face, it shines like the sun, and his clothing glows as white as light. And the brilliant cloud of God's glory descends, and God says of the one who had just announced his suffering and death, this is my one dear son in whom I take great delight. For the disciples struggling with Jesus' announcement of what lay ahead, the transfiguration is God's affirmation that the suffering and death that lies ahead for Jesus does not mean divine disapproval 
or defeat. It declares that the path of abuse and death that lies in the future for Jesus and also for the disciples as they take up the way of the cross is but one step in God's plan. It declares that for Christ and his followers, suffering and death is not the final word. And it gives them a sneak peek into the future to see that God's plan actually leads to resurrection and eternal life with God. But that's not, that's not all that's going on in this passage, for who appears with Jesus but Moses and Elijah? And Jesus and these two visitors talk with each other. Now, the choice of a high mountain and the appearance of Moses and Elijah with Jesus show that what we have here on this Galilean mountain is Mount Sinai revisited. Moses and Elijah were, they were towering figures in Israel's memory. Moses was Israel's great lawgiver, of course, while Elijah was Israel's greatest prophet and a forerunner of the last days. We read that in the very final words of Malachi. And both Moses and Elijah had very unusual departures from this world. Elijah, of course, he was taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. Now, in the Old Testament, um, people, when they died, didn't go to heaven. That kind of sounds strange to us. But in the Old Testament, when you died, you didn't go to heaven. Everybody went to Sheol, which was the underworld. It was the place where all the all the dead, good and bad, went, and it was somewhere deep underground. So Elijah was really, really unusual in being taken not to Sheol, but to heaven itself to be with God. Now, Moses' departure was also unusual. He died, the text of Deuteronomy 34 tells us, but he was buried by God himself, and he was buried in an unknown location that Israel never discovered. And his death and burial was so unusual that some rabbis persisted in the idea that Elijah too did not die, but had been taken to uh, heaven to be with God. Now, in addition, both of these men, Moses and Elijah, had Sinai experiences that included direct encounters with God. So atop Sinai, Moses received the law that was designed to keep Israel in relationship with God. And that same law was designed to help Israel reflect God's character to the world so that they could carry out God's mission in the world. And the prophet's job, represented by Elijah, was to warn Israel when they failed to follow God's law and when they fell out of relationship with God. It was to Mount Sinai, also known as Mount Horeb, that Elijah fled when he was threatened uh, for doing God's will, carrying out, carrying out God's work in the northern kingdom. And at Sinai, Elijah had cried out to God, saying, you know, I was completely on board with you, God, and the people rejected me and your covenant, and they've destroyed your altars and killed your prophets, and now they have tried to kill me as well. And so now here in Matthew 17, we have these two giants, lawgiver and prophet, who appear atop another mountain with Jesus, the Son of God. Now, Matthew is telling this story in the context of his entire book, and 
earlier in chapter 5, he has already framed the work of Jesus for us in terms of the work of these two men, uh, lawgiver and prophet. In Matthew 5, 17, uh, Jesus declares, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So, so what Jesus is saying in this verse and what is now on full display in the transfiguration is that the law that God gave to Israel, it was good. It kept Israel in relationship with God, but now in Christ, God himself has come into the world to make himself known. The good aims of the law are fulfilled and made complete in the person of Jesus Christ, God's Son, who shows us God's character in person and who shows us what relationship with God is like and how we, his followers, can be forgiven. It's kind of like this. Uh, Imagine that you're at a party with your spouse or someone you're dating and it's getting late and it's time to leave, and by now, you're, the one you're with is way on the other side of this crowded room, and it's loud, and there's a sea of people between you, and there's loud music and loud conversation going on. And you catch your date's eye, and they start with the hand gestures, right? It's like, you know, it, and they're saying, it's, it's time to go. And, and so that signals uh, to you some information that you you need to have so that you can leave. That's kind of like the law and how the law communicates. The law communicated God's will and it helped Israel order its life so that it stayed in relationship with God and reflected God's character to the world. But it did so at a distance, right? It did so at a distance. But now that function of showing us what relationship with God is like is perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is like that person who moves across the crowded room and whispers directly into your ear. Both communicate, but the whisper in the ear, it beats the distant pantomime every time. But Peter doesn't quite get this distinction that's being made between Jesus and between his two visitors on the mountain. And he suggests that he make three little tents to mark the event. But before he can even finish making his suggestion, uh, Matthew tells us that a bright cloud and a voice from heaven interrupts him and sets things straight with the same words that the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism back in Matthew chapter 3. And he says, This is my one dear Son in whom I take great delight. But now he adds the words, Listen to him. The law and the prophets, they're great. But Jesus gets the final direct word. This, of course, is easier said than done. And so years later, as we read in the book of Acts, Peter is going to need a vision from heaven to teach him that Gentiles can be saved. He has trouble breaking away from his uh, law mentality. The transfiguration teaches us 
several things. It teaches us that while suffering may be part of God's plan, it's not the end of that plan. The end of God's plan is actually victory over death. The gates of the underworld do not have ultimate power over those who follow Christ. The news of Jesus' suffering is put into perspective by the glimpse that we get of his ultimate resurrected glory in the transfiguration. The transfiguration also shows us that Jesus is God with us, one who perfectly finishes what the law and the prophets began, namely showing us what God is like and what relationship with him is like as a person. And it shows us that who Jesus is matters. His identity matters. And this is what the transfiguration teaches us. It establishes beyond any doubt that this Jesus is not just another human teacher of Scripture. He's beyond even those who gave the law and spoke as prophets. He's God's Son. Especially in our pluralistic society, how we regard Jesus matters because what we decide about Jesus' identity ultimately determines how we follow him. You have undoubtedly heard people say, either in person or online, well, of course, I, I think Jesus is a great teacher, right? Well, that's fine. That's fine. But if that's all Jesus was, then he is no more significant than Muhammad or Joseph Smith, Oprah, or any YouTube guru who wants to sell you a self-help course. A Jesus who was just a great teacher can't forgive sins. A Jesus who was just a healer can't mend an immortal human soul. And a Jesus who was all of these things but didn't rise from the dead is still dead, right? Why follow that kind of Jesus? But the Jesus who is the Son of God is the one who can conquer death and has. Jesus, the Son of God who foresees his own death and resurrection, is one who also knows our future. And the Son of God who knowingly accepted his own suffering is one who can understand our suffering. And this is the only Jesus who can demand of us, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And of this Jesus and no one else, God the Father commands us, listen to him. Amen. Now, I had two uh, questions uh, for you uh, this morning, if you want to take some time to think about them before you leave today. And that's the first of those, and they're on the screen, has learning or recalling something about God's identity or character ever helped you ever overcome a difficult experience? And the second was this, how does the transfiguration change your view of the world, your future, or how you relate to others?